hand. Um, that happened to be just one of my very favorite songs, Waiting Here For You. Um, and so I'm just grateful for uh, Brandon, Grace, Nick, and the team um, for just their constant investment uh, with just worship and, and their music talent here at FBN. It's, it's remarkable. God has always blessed this place with wonderful music talent. Um, and so it's really, it's really cool to just be able to worship the Lord uh, in that. But I want to invite you to Hebrews chapter 4 as we uh, take a step away from 2 Timothy and we step into this new series as we go through April and as we get ready for Easter. Um, and we've called this series No Other Name. We're excited about it because we're really just looking at the exclusivity and the supremacy of Jesus in the way that he did things that only he could do and only he ever will do. He lived a sinless life. Um, he, he, he died uh, an atoning death, like his death meant something for everyone else in the world, right? Uh, which is remarkable. He, he resurrected. He came back to life, never to die again, and then he ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father. This is, us, this is only him. No other name could do this, right? It's only him. And so we're going to spend the month of April leading up to Easter and then taking a week even after Easter um, to focus in on this, and then in May we'll get back into, into 2 Timothy, okay? So we'll be in Hebrews chapter 4 this morning, and I know we just prayed coming out of worship, but I want to pray again to just ask God to just cover this time in our word as we, as we talk about some pretty um, um, important things and sensitive things, a.k.a. sin, right? So let's pray. Father God, thank you uh, for the time that we've had uh, to worship together, um, to, uh, to just be together, to worship you, uh, to seek you together in your word. We're grateful for your word and, and what it tells us and, and how it inclines us to you. And we just pray now that as we talk about some sensitive things, God, that you would um, provide wisdom, clarity, that you would help us navigate it all well. Um, and God, ultimately, that we would uh, somehow today that it, it would contribute into our lives, that we would live to seek the pleasure of you above all other things in this world. So God, lead us in this way and use this time for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I would say of all the triggering words that are out there, and there's a lot, uh, if you have eyes open to the culture at all, probably one of the most disliked, uh, one of the most avoided words is sin, right? Sin. Many people have a super strong aversion to this word, sin. Of course, we probably all do to some degree, right? It's not a great word. It's not a great concept. It's pretty negative, even though it's essential for us to understand it. As believers, we don't want that word in our lives, but especially, especially now. And I think there's a, a variety of reasons for this. One, of course, our post-truth culture kind of refuses any any. Uh, a personal decision or, or lifestyle to be labeled as sin, especially if it doesn't hurt anyone else from whoever's perspective, right? Uh, as if sin is just purely how you live and what you decide affects other people, right? Sin's so much more sinister than that. Another reason is that the word sin has been terribly misused, and I think the church needs to own up to this one, right? Um, We've misused the word sin, sinner. We've used it to kind of draw these lines between us and them as if you and I are any better than anyone else. We're not. We just know Jesus, and everybody else needs to know Jesus. We're no better, right? So to say they're sinners and like to draw those lines even accidentally is, is not good, and we need to guard against that. In fact, I remember uh, one time my kids went to a day camp somewhere uh, a few years ago, 
And then they came back, and one of my daughters, I was working on the fence outside, and she just started singing the song. And it, I'm not going to sing it for you because you don't want to hear that. But the words were, when sinners try to entice you, just say no, no, no. Right? When sinners try to entice you, just say no, no, no. And it's just her cute little voice just bopping to this song. I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> you know, this is the strange thing. So I was like, all right, teaching moment. How about like we generalize this a little bit? Like when people try to entice you, right? Because you calling them sinners makes it sound like you're not one, right? Get away from me, sinners. Keep me pure. You know, don't, don't, come, don't come too close. And I think the church has even tried to... Uh, to to manipulate it to where, you know, grace sounds like it's part of it, but it's really not. It's still drawing a line, right? Like, love the sinner, but hate the sin. Sounds okay, but just because you have a smile on your face doesn't mean it's any less condemning, right? It still draws a line. But I think the main reason, the main reason people have an aversion to sin is because people don't know what it means anymore, what we've done is we've bottled it up to just simply mean bad behavior, bad decisions, right? And we've, we've forgotten what the root is, or we at least choose to not go back to the root of what sin is. And so what is the root of sin? What is the root of sin? It's an important question that we're going to answer in about 20 minutes, Okay, we're going to build up there, but I just want you to know that answer to that question, what is the root of sin, will really help us navigate the sinless nature of Jesus Christ. Because whatever that root is, he doesn't have it, because he's sinless and he's perfect, right? And so we'll get there, but as we get there, I want to start by using this passage, Hebrews chapter 4. I want to invite uh, Seth up, who's going to read this passage for us. This is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and open up to there. And if you are capable, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word this morning? One more. No, I'm just kidding. You can have a seat. Thank you, Seth. That's our passage for today, um, and I want to start with just focusing on this one word at the start, which is therefore. All right? Now, normally when we unpack a book like Second Timothy, we'll give you the character study of Timothy, we'll give you the background and the context of everything that's going on. Well, we're just starting into Hebrews chapter 4, so I want to give you at least a little bit of context. And that's what verse 14 calls us to, therefore. When you read that word in the scriptures, it means whatever you're about to hear is in response to whatever you should have just read. Right? Therefore. And so what is he referring to? So here's the context. Hebrews. If you didn't know already, this book of Hebrews is a remarkable book. Uh, it's a remarkable book. It is written to the Hebrew people who are the Jewish people. Hebrew is just another name for that. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 14 when Abram, Abram was uh, called Abram the Hebrew, which literally meant Abram the one who crossed over. 
right? He was from another people, another, you know, another place. He was from across the river. And so they said, there's Abram, the one who crossed over, right? He's not from here. And the name stuck apparently, right? Because now we have this book called Hebrews, and it's written to a Jewish believing audience. These are Jewish Christians, right? And it's written to, uh, to them because there's this tendency for these people to drift back into their old way, right? They had a tendency to, to drift from their true confession in Jesus Christ and to slide back into rituals and ceremonies and the sacrifices and all of the stuff that was from the old covenant, all of the stuff that was from Moses, all of their old heritage, Right? All of which foreshadowed the perfect work and nature of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is all about. And like I said, a major theme in this book is this idea of falling back, right? drifting away. Um, he says, even in our passage today, that they would hold fast to the confession. Why? Because many people weren't. Right? They were kind of retreating to, uh, back to the legalism and to the, uh, to the ritualism and even to mythological tendencies, right? Uh, in uh, uh, Jewish uh, tradition, angels are a prominent part of Jewish mythology, and, and the Jewish tendency was to give these created beings a higher standing than they should have, which is why Hebrews chapter 1 is all about Jesus being greater than angels, right? It's kind of an awkward beginning unless you understand the context. He's trying to debunk some of the mythology that the people were retreating back to, it's interesting. Chapters 2 and 3 get into the details. It starts to open up how Jesus Christ is greater uh, than, than the high priest. Jesus Christ is greater than Moses, which is usually a name you don't want to deride in front of a Jewish audience, right? But Jesus is even greater than Moses. And then in chapter 4, which is our passage for today, at the start of this chapter, it starts talking about this rest that God promised through Moses. Right? Because Moses was leading people to a promised land, and in this promised land there was going to be rest. And then he equates that rest to, to God who, who himself practiced rest. Right? When he created the world, he created it in six days, and then on the seventh day he rested. And then in verse 10 it says that even now there is still a rest. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his and then in verse 11, it says, let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience, right? Uh, because Moses tried to bring him into the rest, but the rest was not found. Instead, there was lots of disobedience. And he goes on to talk about the word of God, right? No disobedience is hidden from the word of God. His word is living, and it is effective, and it is sharp, and it is double-edged, and it penetrates to the deepest parts of, of the human experience, Right, deeper than you even know. So there is no disobedience that you are not accountable to and that he does not see. Which brings us to our passage today in verse 14. Our passage today in verse 14 going through verse 16 where the author begins to make the case that instead of drifting back into this works-based faith and, and what sure is to come, which is the disobedience, thinking that somehow through your works you can appease God, rather you can hold fast to this confession that you have in Christ Jesus and approach God. Even in your weaknesses, warts and all, you can approach God, right? So I have in my notes this idea of this appeasing God and this approaching God. Do you see the difference there? 
Appeasing God is, is not relationship. Appeasing God, uh, appeasing the wrath of God, it's just doing things. It might be dutiful, but it's, it's obligatory and it's impersonal. And in the effort to appease God, your personal weaknesses are actually a hindrance. But this says that we, because of Jesus Christ, we can approach God. We can approach God. This is relationship. It's intimacy. It's deeply personal, even in the weaknesses, especially in the weaknesses, I would say. By the way, in your regular relationships, you don't truly know someone unless you know their weaknesses, right? This doesn't happen, right? If you keep the relationship surface level, all it will ever be is surface level, which is why I think a lot of people like their relationship surface level. They say that they don't, but it's actually what they're most comfortable with. So people are in this weird spot spot of uh, being stuck, wanting a relationship that they really aren't up for. And this is how we approach God sometimes. It's like, I, I want you, and I know that I'm supposed to want you, but I don't really want this to be real enough that it's going to make me uncomfortable. That's how we approach God. That's how we approach our relationship with God. It doesn't work that way. Not that he has any weaknesses to share to you, because he doesn't, but he's made himself pretty abundantly clear to who he is to you. And when you come to him and share your weaknesses and confess your sins and, and share your heart with him, not that he doesn't already know it, but it's better for you to share it willingly of your own accord because you want that heart-to-heart connection with, with God. And we have that through the approach, right? Now look with me at verse 14. We're going to take this verse by verse. Verse 14 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, which is an awesome title, right? Because it's his human name with kind of his his God nature. Jesus, the Son of God, right? The two natures together. Let us hold fast to our confession, he says. Let us hold fast to our confession. Now, if you recall in kind of ancient Hebrew, Judaic way, the high priest would enter into God's presence by passing through the curtain, right? In the tabernacle, there were all these rooms, and there was this one special room called the Holy of Holies, and it was divided by a curtain that kept everybody out except for the high priest who was able to go in one time a year and atone for the sins of all the people. And there was this curtain that hung, and this high priest would have to do all of these things to make himself right with God, and then he could enter into this Holy of Holies where God's presence sat on the throne or the mercy seat, right? Jesus is a better high priest, though. Why? Well, this high priest passed through a curtain. Jesus, the high priest, it says that he passed through the heavens to be into the presence of God. Literally, he traversed the heavens. I don't know why. Every time I think about that, I just think of superheroes, right? Just the superhero movies are everywhere. But it's kind of a shout-out to this ascension that Jesus just rises into the, into the heavens, into the presence of God where he's interceding for us even now. It's pretty remarkable. I would say he's a better high priest, but it doesn't just stop there. Verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Without sin. Tempted. The high priest, he would have to do all these purifications for himself to even enter in to that holy of holies. Jesus, Jesus, he's pure, he's holy. 
He's already met that requirement. Later, he will die in his purity and in his holiness, and we'll talk about that more next week. But listen, it is remarkable that he was able to experience everything we experience and feel everything we feel, and yet he never succumbed to sin. He is without sin. And it raises this question, and it's a, it's a common theological debate, right? Most people believe in this debate that Jesus is sinless, right? So that's the essential understanding. But then there's this line, and then there's a bunch of unessential debate, but people like to do it, myself included, right? And so we're going to do that just a little bit, but remember it's non-essential, and so we can disagree, and it won't really matter, okay? Um, but there is this debate where even though Jesus is sinless, some will say that Jesus is impeccable, is the theological term they'll use, impeccable, which means, yeah, he was sinless. He couldn't sin because he is by nature God. Even if he wanted to, he couldn't. It, he was physically incapable, right, because of his nature. On the other side is Jesus' peccability. Sure, he had the capacity to sin, but he never would have because he would have never chosen to sin himself, which would mean that even now he has the ability to choose sin, but he chooses not to. He has the capacity, but he doesn't choose it. Kind of interesting, right? So people could go back and forth about this one all day long and more. And what I want to do is just kind of Offer my thoughts to you, which is not something we normally do around here, but for the sake of the greater point. And let me go and just say this again. Philippians 2 says that God emptied himself and became man. No man in his right mind understands the full context of emptied himself. Okay? So nobody truly knows the depths of all of this, right? And even Jesus himself is confusing enough. He calmed the storm like God, and then he bled out like a man. They're kind of both there, right? To what extent did he empty himself and to what extent did he not? He knew the thoughts of the hearts of the Pharisees and others around him. The Bible actually says that he knew those at times. But then in Matthew 24, it actually says that he didn't know when the day of judgment was to come. That's something only God knew. The Son and the Spirit didn't know that. So somehow in emptying himself, Jesus gave up even some of his own omniscience, this all-knowingness. He gave up some of that when he emptied himself and became a man. So no man, myself included, knows where this stuff stops and ends. But I will tell you what I'll tell you where I stand in regards to this peccable, impeccable. And it's exactly where we stand with FBN on everything. And it frustrates a lot of you. I go both ways. I think they're both on the table. So some of you guys are just thinking, just for once, can you just like sell out to just one side? No, we can't. <laughs> we can't. Both. I think he could not sin because he was by nature God. And I think he would not sin because his primary desire was to please the heart of God. I think they're both driving factors in what he did. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all, not even a little. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, it says, in him, Christ, there is no sin, which sounds very similar to what we just read in Hebrews chapter 4, but Hebrews chapter 4 feels more of like a, an outflow. This feels more like of an inside status. In him, there is no sin. I don't believe Jesus 
could sin even if he wanted to. But I also don't believe Jesus would sin in his own volition ever because his primary desire and focus was to please his father. And that's where I want to transition this from being concerned about what he was capable of or not capable of into what he felt in the tension. Regardless of what he could or couldn't do, what I believe Jesus felt in his human person was the fullness of the tension in his will and in his volition. What is this tension I'm referring to? It's in James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And it's a passage you have to go to if you're talking about sin. And so in James chapter 1, let's camp out here for a minute. James says, no one undergoing a trial, also translated temptation at times, should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. This is the nature of God. He is not evil. He doesn't tempt people to evil. And he can't be tempted by evil. Right? Now, yes, God has been known to allow people to go through tests and trials and even temptations. Right? But his purpose in that is not evil. And it's not to send you an evil. If you go into those trials and what comes out on the other side is evil, that's all on you. It's not his desire. His desire is in those places that you would be refined in your faith. That's the context of James chapter 1. Consider it joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of many kinds, he says. Because what that does is it produces endurance. And it brings about a completion and a maturity in your faith. That's God's heart. That's what God uses these things for. Right? So... That's the idea. Evil. He, there's this distinct word here in, for, in verse 13 that God is not tempted by evil. That word in the Greek literally means evil. Big surprise, right? Evil, bad, wretched, not good. That's the only time in these two verses that word is used. Right? Verse 14 says this, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. The context of this passage is evil desire. So the translators added that word evil. But really that word in the Greek that's translated evil desire simply means desire, a strong desire, a longing for. It's the same word we see uh, the Apostle Paul use in Philippians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, where he says, I'm torn between the two. This is what he says, I long to depart to be with Christ. That's the same word, same Greek word. That doesn't sound so bad, does it? He longs to be with Christ. That doesn't sound riddled with sin. But he goes on to say, that's far better, by the way. I long to, be, uh, to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So in Paul's case, his desire, his desire to be with Christ was not a sinful desire. It wasn't a bad desire at all. But it wasn't what God was calling him to do. He was supposed to remain. And so even if he had this bad desire, if that distracted him from doing what God called him to do, it had the potential to become sinful. Right? And this is usually where people, I might start to lose you. Because you might say, well, don't God and Jesus always have the same desire all the time? And I would say, at least one clear time in Scripture, no. I would say no. Luke chapter 22, verses 42 through 44. It's one of my favorite passages in the Scriptures, not because it's pretty or nice, but just because it is so compelling. 
Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, the place in the garden literally called the press. It's where, it's where they, they pressed, you know, uh, the olives, the oil out of the olives to make olive oil. He's in this garden literally called the press. And what he has in his experience is, is complete turmoil, where he's praying to God right before he's going to the cross. This is the night before he goes to the cross. And he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Take this suffering away from me. That's what he's asking. Doesn't seem like a bad request, does it? Nevertheless, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. That was Jesus' prayer. Was his desire to not experience a brutal, awful end bad? No. But did Jesus know that it wasn't what God had called him to? Yes, he did know that. Which means this, even though Jesus had this alternate desire, even from God, it was a secondary desire to his primary desire, which was what? To please his father. His primary desire was to please his father, even if he had a desire that was different than, an innocent desire that was different than his father's. His primary desire and the one that he always chose every single time was to please the heart of his, of his father, even in pure agony, right? If you look at that verse again, it says, it got so bad that an angel from heaven appeared to him to strengthen him, similar to when he was tempted by Satan, right? The angels had actually come tend to him. And then when he came to, it says, being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground, this is called uh, hematidrosis. It's an actual medical condition. It usually happens in the face when in your sweat glands you have these tiny blood vessels that begin to break when someone goes through extreme distress or fear, such as facing death or torture. And so you begin to, to bleed out of your sweat glands and it mixes with your sweat. Literally, he's being pressed. In the place of press, he's being pressed, and yet he remains without sin. He remains without sin. He followed his father's, his father's wish. He desired to please the heart of his father above all other things. John chapter 8, verse 29, this is what Jesus says. The one who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. That was his heart. He felt the full weight of temptation and testing. He felt it. He couldn't follow it because his, by his nature, he's perfect and holy and good and, 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 and the fullness of light. But he also never would have because his heart was set solely on pleasing the heart of his father. And I don't think it was easy for him. He knows it. He feels it. Listen. There are so many temptations that we go through in life. Some of you here are like in the middle of one. You're in the middle of a tussle, a trial, some kind. Isn't it good to know that your God knows exactly how you feel because of what Jesus Christ endured and felt himself? He has the fullness of sympathy for you. The fullness of sympathy. He knows exactly how you feel. What other God offers that? Right? What other faith system offers that? Right? Our God is 
just so much better. <laughs> he is just so much better. And we need to follow Jesus' example. This is what happens when we pursue a relationship and a heart-to-heart connection with God. When we put aside all the obligatory stuff and all the duty stuff and all the, all the things that we just do naturally and without even a thought, the heartless stuff and the mindless stuff, we just put it aside and just give it a minute to just be in this and to pray and actually just connect your heart to God's because you want to satisfy him and you want to please him above everything else you have going on. That's the idea. And it's because of what Jesus did and because of his sinless nature that we actually have that opportunity. You can actually do that. Verse 16 says this. It says, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because of what Jesus did, you have approach. You have access, right? Through Jesus, God has been made public access where he wasn't before. He's public access in the name of Jesus Christ. You can come to him incomplete, full of sin, full of whatever you have going on, full of weaknesses, and you come in the name of Jesus Christ and there will be grace and mercy for you. We have that approach. Praise the name of Jesus. It's the sinless life of Christ that says that we don't need to be perfect, to, 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 to enter into his presence, as if we ever could anyways. You can't achieve any of that. You can't achieve holiness. You can't achieve a right standing with God. Rather, all of this stuff is the byproduct of a heart-to-heart connection with God through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what this heart-to-heart connection means. It means approaching God, not appeasing God. It means doing what Christ did and seeking the pleasure of God over all else, which brings me back to our question, what is the root of all sin? The root of all sin simply is unbelief. And it's unbelief that shows itself whenever we say, God, I don't like your way, I'm going my way. I find more pleasure in my way than your way because I don't believe your way is better for me. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Not enough to actually go your way if it's even a little hard. That's the root of sin. The cure is similar. It is belief in the person and the gospel of Christ. It is belief that God's way is better, and it's a relinquishing of your own pleasure so that you can satisfy his desire above all else. In Romans chapter 14, verse 23, it says, Everything that is not from faith is sin. Everything that is not from faith is sin. Unbelief. We, we, we want our own personal desires above what he wants for us. Listen, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1, listen to this. This is a cool passage. Woe to the rebellious children. This is the Lord's declaration. Listen to what they do. They carry out a plan, but not mine, God says. They make an alliance, but against my will, God says. And so when they act in this disbelief, what happens? Piling sin on top of sin, on top of sin, on top of sin. When Hebrews 11, chapter 6, Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, Now without faith it is impossible to please God. The issue with sin is that we make it the point and it's not the point. Sin's not the point. 
and it shouldn't be our focus. The focus of your life should be the desire and devotion of your heart to please God, and he takes it from there. Avoiding, a sin, avoiding sin is the byproduct of living a life devoted to the pleasure of God. Holiness is the beautiful outcome of a heart that desires to reach the heart of God above all else. And I think this is part of the reason why so many young people are leaving the church these days. You've seen it, right? The, the mass exodus, young people leaving the church. This is why I'm so thrilled that for whatever reason at FBN, God has decided to fill like the front five rows with young people. And more. Young people are part of the culture here. Praise God. It's not the case everywhere else. There's a lot of people running from the church, and I think it's because in the church and in the home, what they were taught was religion. They were taught to behave well to please God. To avoid sin. They weren't taught to, to, to reach and to trust the heart of their creator through the bridge of Jesus Christ. They knew all the Bible answers, but their hearts are disconnected. I did student ministries here for about eight years, and now I'm still involved in the college ministries. Listen, you can see it when it's there. They know their stuff, but the heart's, the heart's disconnected. It doesn't matter what you know. It just doesn't matter what you know. What matters is, is if your heart is connected to his, if you at all desire to please him. Even beyond young people, I think no wonder people are suffering constantly under the temptations of porn and alcohol and possessions and wealth and, and chasing unhealthy methods of approval and security and value, and they give themselves to bad relationships and stupid obsessions. And then as soon as they start to feel the weight of conviction from, from the Holy Spirit, the first thing they try, religion. Well, I, if I can just fix this and stop this, then I can have a right relationship with God. When actually, what a wonderful time to bring your weaknesses to the heart of God and to confess and to, and to trust him to, to, to take your burden and to have a heart-to-heart -heart with God and to ask him to cultivate something in you other than this religious thing that you're trying. To be moved by the heart of God over the inconvenience of sin. You know what I mean by that? So many young people are just like, well, I did sin, and my parents are mad at me, and so this sin is an inconvenience, so I will do what I need to do to get it on the right side. And then one week later, what are they doing? The same thing, because what they are moved by is the inconvenience of sin. They're not moved by what pleases the heart of God. Christ lived the perfect life. It was not comfortable. It wasn't pretty, but he gave himself constantly and completely to others. And he was tempted fully. And then he endured the cross as the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins. And he did it because his heart was connected to God's. He sought first and always the will and pleasure of the Father. And his sinless life calls us to do the same. To change the way we're pursuing the Lord. To change the way we, we approach him. Belief and trust in the gospel and person of Jesus Christ, this is the bridge from God's heart to yours. And through Jesus, according to this passage, we have divine access where we can actually approach him. We have access to him. You don't have to worry about appeasing him. You can approach him, right? Trusting that he is good, trusting his good character. We have divine sympathy. 
that in the body of Jesus Christ, he experienced temptation fully. He knows exactly how you feel, and you can bring that to him, and he can respond with God-like power. And we have divine provision that when you do that, he says, I will give you the grace that you need that is consistent with my power, and I will give you the mercy that you need that is consistent with my sympathy because I know how you're feeling, and you bear the name of Jesus Christ. And so you get it. You get it. It's all made available by the perfect and unblemished life and blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you are here and you don't have that, you can get it. You can get it. It's simply just having a heart-to-heart with him to call on the name of the Lord. And the Bible says that if you do that, you'll be saved. Just to call him how you would call on him. I don't know you. I don't know what you're wrestling with. But whatever that is, call on the name of the Lord in that thing. Let him into that. And when you do, he's not just going to come into that, but he's going to come into everything about you. He's going to come into your present, and he's going to come into your eternity, praise his name. And if you're here and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you have that. And if you're here and you've never done that, then it's time to have a heart-to-heart with your creator. And you can do that by the power of Jesus' name. Let's pray. Our God, I pray for everyone in this room, wherever they're at in this in this tension of temptation and sin and, and understanding the sinless nature of Christ and what that truly affords us. God, that you have made yourself available because of the bridge of Jesus Christ and because of his sinless nature. You have, you have provided a way for us to be redeemed and to be restored back into you. Father, for the believers in this room who struggle still with trusting religion and struggle still with, with, with keeping things surface level and think that they're even maybe playing you, I pray that you would just break that today, that you would give them boldness to tenderly approach you, to bring their true selves before you and to confess what they need to confess and to, uh, um, and to get off their chest what they need to get off their chest with you and to give you a chance to truly reveal your heart to them because you know exactly how they feel. And if there's anyone here today who has never believed upon you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they would, that they would approach you they would approach you and that they would carry the name of Christ with them and say, I believe that Jesus Christ was sinless and perfect and that he died for my sins and I want to live for him from now on. Please forgive me and save me. If they would just approach you in that way, God, you can change their entire existence. And I pray that they would do that today. In your, in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. We're going to go into a brief time of response. There's a few questions on the screen for you. If you